I hope you'll turn it now in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. You may have already been there. I hope you were. We are beginning a series through the Gospel of Mark. This is week one. We're starting at the, the beginning of the Gospel, of course. And uh, I hope you'll stay with us. You'll stay consistent, stay faithful as we walk through this wonderful book of the Bible, the Gospel of Mark. I've entitled this series, Unexpected, and I think that is uh, something that you will learn as we go through this series, as we go through this book, that the Gospel of Mark really presents to us a Jesus that we don't often expect. And things that he does and words that he says, it's something that is unexpected. First of all, though, uh, you have to know that the Gospels, as we have them in our Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of our New Testament, they are books that record Jesus' life, yes, and we may be thinking of them as biographies, but it might be a mistake to do so. The Gospels aren't necessarily biographical in nature. They don't record for us all of Jesus' words. In fact, let me just read that verse for you at the end of John's Gospel, where he is coming to a close of his account of Jesus' life. And he says, he makes the following statement. John 21, 25, he says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose... That even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Now again, John is perhaps writing a little bit um, in hyperbole. But I think he's also stating a fact. That Jesus did so many wondrous things that it is impossible for us to record them all. And that is why we have different accounts of Jesus' life. Not all the Gospels record the same things. They show us the same Savior, but they show different sides of that Savior. It's almost like you have a diamond, a finely cut diamond. And as you turn it in the light, you are seeing different views, different hues. And you see more brilliant light as you turn it. And such is what we have in the life of Jesus in these four Gospels. We have different sides of a finely cut diamond that seek to show us the brilliant and unmistakable life of Jesus Christ. And such is why each of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, work more like a treatise. A literary essay of sorts that seek to show us something specific about Jesus. This is somewhat common in terms of studying the Bible. You have Matthew who sort of presents Jesus as Israel's true and better king. So all of what he does and writes and records is to that end. Luke sees and strives to show us Jesus as the savior. He's constantly seeking people whose lives he can touch and to save and redeem John, however, seeks to show us Jesus as God. That's right, he records the most miracles in his gospel. He seeks and strives to show us that Jesus was God himself, God in the flesh. Mark, however, is different. He seeks to show us Jesus as a servant. Jesus as low. Jesus as one who comes and serves us. Such is the gospel of Mark. It's A mysterious gospel. It's an unexpected gospel. 
And as you uh, open this gospel, you'll notice that there's no mention of the author's name. It doesn't begin by declaring that this is John Mark declaring unto you the gospel. There's no mention of who his audience is. We don't know to who he is writing for or on whose behalf he's writing or where he's writing from. Like we get in some of the other epistles later on in the New Testament. It's generally inferred though from the text that he's writing to the Romans. And it's believed that this gospel was written perhaps around the mid to late 60s A.D. And the authorship is traditionally given to one disciple you may remember. His name is John Mark. Now, John Mark uh, was a disciple of Paul and Peter. Turn with me quickly to Acts chapter 12. This is where we kind of meet this character in our story of the Bible. Acts chapter 12. You'll notice that his name is often either John or it's sometimes also called Marcus. Marcus was his Latin name, such as why we get John Mark. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. We meet this John, this Marcus, it says in Acts 12, 12. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John. That's our, our man there. John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And look at the end of the chapter, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. He was a disciple here. Of Paul and of Peter. He's also the one who seems to cause a little bit of strife between Paul or yeah, between Paul and Barnabas. If you go to Acts 15, you can read that story of where Paul and Barnabas split. They have an argument over John because he left them. He departed from them while they were on a missionary journey. And then that's where Paul and Barnabas go their separate ways. But he's later restored, John Mark is later restored into Paul's fellowship at the end of Colossians. uh, Paul calls John Mark his fellow laborer in the gospel. And in 2 Timothy, Paul calls John Mark again, he's profitable for ministry. This is John Mark. He had an up and down relationship with Paul. But as we will see, he had a, a steady, devoted relationship with the apostle Peter, look very quickly at Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter in chapter 5. John Mark's name appears and pops up again there. 1 Peter chapter 5. If I could get there. 1 Peter 5 verse 13. The church... That is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. That's John Mark again. He calls him his son, you'll notice that. Tradition holds that Mark wrote his gospel, the gospel that we have in our New Testaments, that Mark wrote it based off of sermons or perhaps even conversations he had with his mentor, the Apostle Peter. That as Peter was going about in that first century during the times of the apostles, Mark was following him and jotting down notes and conversing with him about this one Jesus. And such is where we get this gospel. And it gives this gospel a lot of credence because it's from an eyewitness testimony. And that's what I kind of like about Mark. 
I love, as I've been reading and studying this gospel, you can almost kind of see it as if Peter and Mark are sitting down almost by a fireside perhaps. And they're chatting, they're discussing about this guy named Jesus that Peter had been around for several years and he's recalling story after story about this Jesus. And he's telling him all the things that he did. It reminds me somewhat of my grandfather's stories. My grandfather, we called him Poppy. He passed away a couple of years ago. But I remember we would gather as a family. And he would always have crazy stories that he would tell us about some such thing that he did as a kid. Or some such thing that he and his friends did in college And I was always surprised because it was coming from this steady, calm man of the faith. And he was telling me some pretty adventurous stories. But I think about that as I think about Peter and Mark sitting down talking about Jesus. I imagine Peter reflecting on what had happened. On the the Lord that he denied and the Lord that saved him. And he was remembering all of the things that this Jesus did. And I imagine Mark furiously scribbling down all these notes. Seeking to deliver a gospel so that the world would know of this unexpected savior. This is the gospel of Mark. It's the simplest gospel I would say in that it is the shortest By a wide margin. Mark as he's writing this gospel. He doesn't add a lot of editorial comments. Um, He doesn't even include a lot of the large or extended sermons of Jesus. Like we see in Matthew or Luke. Actually Mark has often been called the gospel of action. Because that's what it does. It describes the actions of Jesus. And it just tells them for you. It tells them this is who Jesus is. And this is what he did. And he goes here and he goes there. This is what he was doing. It's short. It's quick. It's hard hitting. It's full of action and narrative. And he records movement rather than perhaps sermons or conversations. And you'll notice that as we go through this this book. uh, He jumps between scenes rapidly. In fact, if you just survey the first chapter, you can notice all of the things it records for you right away. If your Bible that you have in front of you has those paragraph markers marked off, you can see that it records Jesus' baptism. And it goes through his temptation, the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, the calling of Jesus' disciples, the healing of a man with an unclean spirit, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, the healing of a man with leprosy, and countless others that were sick and demon-possessed. And then also preaching in Galilee. The chapter is packed. It's full of movement. It's full of a savior of a Jesus who was active in ministry. And in fact, you'll notice one thing you want to keep in mind as we go through the gospel. Is Mark's use of words that evoke immediacy. He'll either say the word immediately or straightway or other some such word that conveys a sense of urgency. You can sense that Mark is desperately wanting to get this word out. He's desperately wanting to show you Jesus' life and ministry in a very plain, a very factual way. A way that conveys to those who would read these words that this is true. That I have been around an eyewitness of Jesus. I have seen uh, what it has done in his life. Perhaps Mark was saying. And that these words I'm telling you now. They are true. And I'm staking my life on them. 
Reading Mark's gospel is kind of like seeing Jesus' highlight reel. I like to think of it that way. You're seeing Jesus' highlights. You're seeing the things that Jesus did. And they're seeing the things that would make them knowledgeable of this Savior. Of this Jesus who saves. And that's why I like to think of it as Peter and Mark conversing together. Reflecting on the Savior. Reflecting on all of these past events. And in fact, one writer says it this way, that the gospel of Mark seems as though it was written with conviction. Not that something new had been discovered, but that something new had happened in the history of the world. That's what I think of when I think of the gospel of Mark. Is that Peter is reflecting on this new thing that had just happened to the world. And it's going to change the world forever. And in fact the apostles in the, in, in the book of Acts are accused of turning the world upside down. And it's because they preached a message of an unexpected savior. This is the something new that happened. It was Jesus himself. So this morning in the time remaining, I want to show you two things this morning that show us this unex- the unexpectedness of this Jesus, of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, right from these opening verses. Look at verses 2 through 8 again of Mark chapter 1. It says, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair. And with a girdle of, of, of a skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me. The lashet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water. But, ye, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Here I think we have our first lesson. It's the lesson about the unexpected messenger. The unexpected messenger. Because here Mark opens his gospel by just declaring that this is the beginning of God's good news. It's it's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the king's herald. He is our Lord's herald. Like a herald would be sent forward before a king to deliver his message. To announce his coming. So is John the Baptist. And he's citing some uh, prophecies from Isaiah and Malachi to tell you that this is who John was. He is our Lord's messenger. And what an unlikely messenger he is. The choice of John would be one that would immediately scandalize the religious authority of the day. Look again just at the text. John didn't look like them. We have in verse 6 a description of John's appearance And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle, a skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey. And that's not just superfluous details about who John was or what he looked like or or anything of that. It's to show you. It's meant to be abrasive. 
It's meant to sort of stun you and get you to realize who was picked out as Jesus' messenger. It was John the Baptist. His physical description is meant to be different. He didn't appear like the religious authorities of the day. Who were all put together. Who thought they had all everything in the law figured out. The, the scribes and Pharisees, the lawyers of the day who had uh, believed that and declared themselves to be the religious authorities were here preaching their own message. And here John comes and he didn't conform to how they thought he should be conformed to. He didn't appear like who Jesus, who God would pick. This doesn't appear like the one who would herald the Messiah's coming. Look at what he looks like. Look at what he's eating. He's altogether different. And his wardrobe and his diet are, are, are here sort of an object lesson for these religious authorities. Their lax, their luxurious religion that was so popular in this day uh, was now scandalized by this one who was dressed in camel's hair coming and telling them, Repent, for the kingdom of the Lord is near. Can you imagine their faces as this one, this crazy one, this crazy madman from the wilderness is coming and telling them what to do? He was an unexpected messenger. An unlikely herald of the Messiah. He didn't look like them. But also notice what he was preaching. Because he didn't sound like them either. Look at verse 4. John did baptize into the wilderness. And preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And verse 7. And preached saying. There cometh one mightier than I after me. The latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. John didn't sound like the religious authorities of his day. He was much different. His message was different. He didn't comprom compromise what he knew to be true. And make it more palatable to his audience. He preached the truth. Think, think again about the religious moment that we are now witnessing. We are coming out of 400 years of divine silence. There's a 400 year gap between your Old and New Testaments of years where there was no recorded words of our Lord. And here the first inkling of what God is going to do in the world comes from a man who says repent. Who says that the Messiah is coming. Only uh, there's, they have some ancient stories, some ancient prophecies about this Messiah. And here John is... A weird looking man, a different looking man, an odd looking messenger from the wilderness. And he's saying, repent, your Messiah, he's coming. Who would believe that man? You would think he would be crazy and he would probably be, be right. But think of who John is preaching to. He's preaching to a religious uh, group of elitists who thought they had this religion thing down to a science. The Pharisees... The Sadducees, the lawyers, the scribes of this day were those who thought that they had the law figured out. That if they just did these certain things that it would make them favorable in God's eyes. That if they uh, adhered to all these little uh, jots and tittles of the law that they were able to win and accrue God's favor. 
And here again is this bug-eating, desert-dwelling madman saying that you don't have it figured out. You were wrong. You have it all wrong. Repent because your Messiah is coming. John's very message was one that scandalized these religious authorities. They don't have it figured out. You have to repent. You see, the, the very nature of that message is such that it, they have to admit that they have a need first before they can accept this message. They have to be humble enough to be uh, aware of and acknowledge the fact that they are desperate Repent of your haughty ways, your prideful ways, John is telling them. You don't have it figured out. You've missed it. But I'm here to tell you about the Messiah. And some people receive this message. Look at verse 5. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem. And were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. Some indeed realize their desperation and they confess their sins and they're baptized in repentance. And such is what makes John's message different. Because he's preaching someone else. He's not preaching himself. He's not preaching to amass a following or gain acclaim or gain uh, uh, someone to uh, give him praise. He's preaching because he's preaching someone else. He's preaching something other than himself. Notice again verse 7. There's one coming after me. The latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I'm not even worthy to take off his sandals. Because he is so great and mighty. I'm not even worthy of him. He wasn't the standard. John knew his place. This is what makes me so convicted of John. John knew his place. He knew his unworthiness. He knew his role. His role was to point to someone else. It wasn't to be this awesome authority figure. Who would amass a a massive following. And crowds would come after him. Even though they did. That wasn't what he was after. John understood his role. His role was to point to Jesus. Was to prepare the way for the true and better messenger. The true and better king. The one whose shoes he's not even worthy to unloose. The one who would baptize them not with water as he says in verse 8. But with the Holy Spirit. An altogether different baptism. He learned and he knew his unworthiness. That's where we get that great verse in John chapter 3 verse 30. Where John the Baptist himself confesses. He must increase and I must decrease. He knew his role to play. I have to think. Do we know our roles? Do we know that we have a role to play? Because you do. We all have different roles to play in God's kingdom. In the mission of God's gospel. And so long as we are pointing to Jesus' name. So long as we are exalting what Jesus has done. We are fulfilling our role. We are fulfilling our calling. So long as we are loving our neighbors well. And pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are fulfilling the role we were called to play. 
But we forfeit that calling as God's disciples when we, ex- when we ex- seek to exalt ourselves, our names, our reputations, our needs above Jesus. This is the lesson from John the Baptist, from this unexpected messenger, that we have a role to play in God's kingdom. Are we fulfilling it? Are we fulfilling that role? Are we getting out of the way? Are we getting out of Jesus' spotlight as we are seeking to shine that light in the world? This is the lesson about an unexpected messenger. But look very quickly at the next verses because we also have a lesson about the unexpected message. Look at verses 1 through 4 again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness, and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. You know, it's significant here that John uses the word gospel right at the outset of his book. That word gospel, it comes from a Greek word called evangelion. It's where we get our words evangelize or evangelist or evangelism. And it really just means glad tidings or literally in the English good news. And uh, it might surprise you to know that it's not really a religious term. It's been used by the, the church of all different denominations since. But it wasn't originally something that just the churches or spiritual people would shout. It was uh, the gospel. A gospel was merely an announcement. So if you were a king's messenger and you had been commissioned by your king to declare good news to the town square... You might enter the town square and just shout, Hear ye, hear ye, I have a gospel. I have good news to share with you from the king. And such is what Mark is doing here. Remember, perhaps he's writing to the Romans and he's sharing with them the good news. And yes, it's significant that he defines this good news. Because look at verse 1 again. He says, The beginning of the gospel... Of Jesus Christ. Not the gospel of Caesar. Not the gospel of some other dignitary or authority. It's the gospel of Jesus. The Christ. The Messiah. The Son of God. I'm declaring to you news that is altogether better and different. And altogether the perfect, the best news. Because it's the news of Jesus. It's not just any gospel. It's the gospel. You know, I'm struck by Mark's presentation of Jesus' ministry here in his book. Because, just as we said, the gospel is news. It's the presentation of someone else's message. And in fact, it's it's just the presentation of facts. That's what news, as it should be, if we get rid of fake news, news, as it should be, is just the presentation of facts. Here's what happened, and here's what we can learn from it. It's the repetition reporting of what has happened, and it cannot be changed, and it cannot be altered. That's news as it should be, and such is our good news. The good news of God's Son cannot be debated. It cannot be questioned. It just is. 
This is what Mark is trying to get us to see. Here is what happened. I'm reporting to you the news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here is what he did. And here is what that means. And here is what he's continually doing for us. This is why it's good news. Mark just puts Jesus before us. Here he is. The unexpected Savior. You have to to respond to him. You have to see him for who he is. And here is what you can do. And here is what he has made you to see. One writer says it this way. It was Mark's purpose to present Jesus in the actual reality of his wonderful life. His aim was to simply to show him to others as he had showed himself to his disciples in all the human and superhuman facts of his life. This was Mark's intent. Not to sway your view of Jesus, but just to report what Jesus had done. And that's why I'm struck by Mark's presentation of Jesus. Because he doesn't uh, put him as some sort of political power player or some sort of persuasive humanitarian. He doesn't just show him in that light. Mark's endeavor was really to uh, show him as the unexpected savior, yes. Because he subverts all of the common things we would come to assume about the Messiah. Of what the, the, those in the first century would think about the Messiah. Because he's not a Messiah who comes and tries to claim the throne for himself. He comes and he serves. In fact, Mark chapter 10 verse 45 has for us, I think, the theme of the entire book. The theme of in Mark's entire gospel, I think, is stated here by Jesus himself. Mark 10 45 says this. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He didn't come to minister or minister, be ministered unto, he came to minister. He didn't come to be served, he came to serve. He came to be the servant. This is who Mark presents to us. He presents a Messiah who was deferential, not domineering. A Messiah who was meek, not tyrannical. A Messiah who was self-sacrificial, not self-serving. It's a Messiah who is altogether different. He's the opposite of what a king should be. He's the opposite of what we would expect about a promised, a long-promised monarch. (laughs) But this was Jesus' mission. It wasn't to reclaim the throne away from Rome. His bent wasn't on being a political advocate. His bent was on forgiveness. As it says here right in Mark 1.4. On the remission of sins. This was Jesus' mission. This was his mission. He is Israel's hope. He is our hope. Because he, is, he himself is the beginning of the gospel. Those first couple words of Mark's book really describe Jesus himself. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. He is the beginning. As it says in Revelation 22, that he is the Alpha and the Omega. Or 2 Corinthians 1.20, he is the yes and the amen. The beginning and the ending of God's good news. It is all about Jesus. 
He is the unexpected Messiah who comes not to rule and to reign by force, but comes to die. He's the unexpected king whose primary service to us was one of death. Was one of taking our death onto himself. This was the good news of Jesus. This is the glad announcement about Jesus Christ. That he himself is our baptism of repentance and remission of sins. That he himself has been baptized in our sin. And that now we are able to be baptized in his righteousness. That he has taken our death and our condemnation for us. So that we might be absolved and our guilt might be gone. Such as that word remission. It means to be pardoned, to be delivered, to have release from condemnation. This is Jesus. He is our remission from sins. He is the one who delivers us from all condemnation. This is the true and the better baptism which John alludes to in verse 8. Is that which Jesus ushers in a baptism not of water but of the Holy Spirit through faith in him. It's the true and better baptism from the true and better Messiah. Jesus Christ. An unexpected Messiah. One whose mission wasn't to dominate, but was to deliver. His mission was one of to be the repentance, and as it said in Mark 10, to be the ransom from sin for many, for the whole world. He comes to overthrow sin, death, and the devil, yes, but he does so in a completely unexpected way. He doesn't do it by taking out his sword and vanquishing the devil. He does it by succumbing to death himself. He defeats death by death. He delivers us by showing his weakness on the cross. And then showing his strength three days later by rising again. Thereby declaring that he is the ruler. He is the one who holds the keys of death and hell in his hands. This is our unexpected Savior. The one who comes to serve. The unexpected King who comes to die. This is why the message was received with such alarm and such questioning. Because a king should rule. He should be on the throne. And yet here's our king. He's on the cross. But such is our king. Because he defeated that cross. By coming out of that grave again. And this is our good news. This is our gospel. It's the news we announce. We can't debate it. We can't just argue over it. This is what has happened. And we're reporting it to you. As I am reporting it to you. Mark is reporting it to us. That here is the good news about Jesus. He served. And he saved. Through his own death. So do we. We need a fresh dose of unexpectancy at this word gospel. At this good news of Jesus Christ. That's why I ask you this morning. Is this gospel a gospel to you? 
Is this news good to your ears? Have you been baptized in that true and better baptism, which is the baptism of repentance and remission of sins? Have your sins been released from you? Have your, has your guilt been taken away by the, by, the, by the true and the better Savior? This is the gospel. Is it a gospel to you? It is if you accept it and you believe it with your heart and you believe it's infinite and it's glorious truth. But it is not good news if you don't believe it. If you have not yet been baptized by that true and better baptism of faith. Today might be your day. Today would be a glorious day. This is our Savior The unexpected Messiah. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.